Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Jonathan Martin, Alexander Burns, and Willie Brown to the Commonwealth Club stage. As indicated, I'm not Jonathan. I'm not Alexander. I'm actually Willie Brown. <laughs> and a whole nip a whole dramatically different uh, role. Ordinarily, I'm the individual who is answering questions and creating ideas, sometimes not so accurate. (laughs) But I've been given the opportunity, and by the Commonwealth Club, uh, to chat with uh, two people. They've written a, a book, very... Long book. (laughs) They sent me a copy of it. I received the book uh, late Saturday when I returned from my daughter's college graduation. And I think you called me. One of you called me. Right. Somebody called me. I have no idea how they got my number. (laughs) Uh, Pretty resourceful. But they, no kidding, resourceful. (laughs) And you'll understand that how resourceful they can be as we go through the book. (laughs) Uh, And I thank them very much for sending me a copy of the book, thinking that it was about a month away before we'd have to do this. And he told me, oh, no, it's right, it's Tuesday. (laughs) Tuesday, May 17th. And it was so many years ago that... Uh, the Supreme Court, with Warren writing the opinion, said uh, separate but equal is no longer equal and applicable as the law in this nation. That law had been in place since, mm, I don't know, 1896, a document called Plessy versus Ferguson decision. Right. And it was frankly, the very first time that America actually was going to extend equal educational opportunities uh, to all of the people that lived in this country, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds, regardless of the color of their skin, their choice in religion. Uh, And and it was a, a date that shall forever be on the top of my agenda because I had graduated from a high school where I was the third class to graduate in a little town called Mineola, Texas. All of my family before me had gone to a school that only went to the 10th grade. You had to go to a place out of town, uh, another one of the cities, where they had two more grades for black kids. And So I remember this date. I have no idea how the Commonwealth Club came up with the brilliant idea of having this conversation. And I have no idea why they had what basically is not a black book. That is the subject matter of this uh, conversation, except for the content of this book. Right. You'll clearly know that the description that it's not a black book is not totally and completely accurate. The content of the book is just incredible. And these two gentlemen uh, put this book together 
And it is as if, in my review of the book, it is as if they were present and had a, a listening device on every political participant in this nation except me. <laughs> That's a sequel. <laughs> I suspect you are on right on that. But uh, it's, it's quite a book. Thank you. So you have come. Thank you. Uh, and I'm sorry that we have so little time uh, because the book, uh, I asked you, Jonathan, yeah. uh, about the business of um, listening to the book on audio tape. Right. You promised me, oh, yes, we did that. Yeah. Well, no, they did not do that. Uh, not till the 27th of May. That's when Simon and Schuster. No. Is, what? I say, yeah. That's when Simon and Schuster was going to release it. But, as well, usual, it'll be worth on my the staff yeah. uh, knew an avenue to get your book. I love it. Um, because of my vision issues, uh, I listen more to sound than I do to reading. Right. And uh, knowing the number of pages that are in your book, yeah. knowing that I was going to do this today, I knew I had to really, uh, in one manner or another, find out what the, the content of the yeah. book. And I never would have had the number of hours it would take to read the book. But you can listen for 12 hours, and you can hear the whole book. And I listened for 12 hours. It was that good. I heard the whole book. It was that good. It really is a book that, were I your agent, I would already be trying to sell it as a movie. It's just that good. And I want you to make sure that when we are here today, you share with them the book. How did this book come about? Well, it's hard to know uh, where to start, but uh, first of all, just thank you so much for uh, spending 12 hours with it uh, and for spending this hour with us, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club and to all of you uh, for being here. Well, let's do, they might not do, not do 12. I listen slowly. <laughs> but go ahead. Listen on fast forward and get through it even, <laughs> even quicker. Uh, no, so Jonathan and I have been uh, colleagues for, uh, you know, on and off and mostly on for uh, almost 15 years now, and we've talked, uh, you know, uh, time and again about, you know, should we do a book about this campaign? Should we do a book about uh, that campaign? We thought about doing something in 2016. Uh, and every time, you know, as you know, uh, it takes an awful lot of work to write a book. And we wanted to uh, find a moment where, you know, the, the sort of uh, blood, sweat, and tears of reporting and writing the thing uh, w- would really be worth it because the moment would be that important. Uh, and as the 2020 election was developing, we thought, you know, this is going to be a big one. Uh, and, and maybe this is the time uh, to do it. Um, you know, whether Trump uh, gets reelected or not, it's clearly a pivotal crossroads uh, for the country. Uh, and then COVID happened. And then George Floyd was murdered. And then Trump uh, refused to concede defeat in the election. And then January 6th happened. And at every turn of the screw, uh, we're just talking to each other and saying, oh, my goodness, this has to be more than a campaign book. If this just starts with, you know, the day that Joe Biden announces his campaign and ends with the day uh, that he gets 270 plus electoral college votes, that is not going to meet this moment in history. So we decided to do something uh, that is hard for us to do uh, as newspaper reporters, which is uh, sort of tap the brakes a little bit and go a little more slowly uh, and not rush to put this book out first 
Uh, there were a bunch of campaign books that came out in calendar year 2021. We said we're going to uh, wait a little while longer and try to tell a bigger story. That's basically how we got to the parameters uh, of this book. How we reported the thing is a much longer answer, uh, and, uh, and I'll sort of let Jonathan pick it up there. We really, and uh, thanks, Mayor, for, for joining us here today. Uh, it's, a real, it's a real treat um, to be here on your turf in San Francisco. Um, we, uh, we really wanted to make this a book that would have lasting historical impact. We knew that we were living through an extraordinary period in American history. We were cognizant of that. Days like January 6th, we knew that we had to record what was going on. And so when we set out to do this book, we knew that historically these books are largely the province of you know, um, recalled conversations, vague recollections of moments, and you're really relying on people's memories. And memories are not always reliable when you're putting together history. So we really strive, Mayor, to get primary source material, whether that was contemporaneous notes, whether it was memos, or whether it was, in a lot of cases, audio recordings um, of these conversations, of these calls in which the political actors of, of our time were sort of playing out uh, this story. And we believe that that really adds an element to our book that, as you mentioned earlier, that um, it's almost like there's a recording device on some of the characters in the book. In some cases, that's because there was. Um, the beauty of the iPhone is that everybody in this room uh, has that opportunity now to uh, record history or record what they're ordering for lunch. Uh, it, and that that was an invaluable service to us as we reported this book was going back and sort of getting uh, that that kind of material to really retell this story as it happened instead of trying to piece together how it happened. In the book, you do the book in such a way that we literally can chart as reading as you read the book, you can chart the totality of the campaign and from the time of the selection process in the primaries, right? You start in the book with reference to Biden and you start with Biden-Harris first debate yeah. uh, confrontation and you continue throughout the book with some reference to what occurred there. Yeah. Why? Sure. I think that that's a formative moment in the history of their relationship. I think up until that point, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris didn't really know each other all that well. In fact, the only real connection they had, Mayor, was Joe Biden's son had served as state attorney general at the same time in Delaware as Kamala Harris had here in California. And beyond that, uh, they didn't have much relationship. But because of that connection and because of Bo Biden's tragic death, I think Joe Biden believed that they had a kinship, that they were friends because of that. And so Biden was stung when Kamala Harris came at him in that, in that first Democratic debate in the spring of 2019. And it never, it never really fully went away. I think, especially with um, uh, the uh, now First Lady Jill Biden, when we get to the selection process for VP, you know, Jill Biden is saying out loud, "Is there, is there anybody else uh, in this entire country that we can pick instead of the one who attacked Joe?" And I think to this day in the West Wing, 
uh, and uh, Alex can, can jump in here, uh, I think that their relationship from that primary and then subsequently her being picked, that, that has shaped the dynamic to this day in terms of how not just Biden, but Biden's staff views the vice president and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I obviously agree with all of that. And I think that it's a uh, I think the uh, moment in the debate and then the fact that uh, she ends up as Biden's running mate anyway, uh, really tells you something about both of them, uh, something pretty deep about both of them. Uh, you know, we have a moment uh, in our reporting prior to that first debate in the Democratic primary uh, when people who are advising then Senator Harris uh, ask her, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Because if he ends up as the nominee, you know, you'd be a pretty serious candidate for vice president. And her response is, no, if if we need to worry about VP, we'll worry about VP later. I'm running for president. Uh, That shows, I think, a level of a risk tolerance and also a sort of sense of a confidence in political pragmatism that, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see how it goes because I'd like to be the president of the United States. And if that doesn't work out, well, we'll figure out later, later. Right. And I think you see something quite similar uh, on Biden's side when he chooses her for vice president, that he's not uh, entirely comfortable with the idea of choosing this person who attacked him. But he likes the idea of what other people will think about him because he has chosen someone who attacked him. Right. That, you know, yeah. He doesn't feel like uh, he wants to, you know, certainly his family doesn't feel like they want to let bygones be bygones. He doesn't feel uh, entirely like he's ready to turn the other cheek. In fact, he says uh, to one of his advisors that if he chooses her, he's going to need to see that clip everywhere for a week. And he's not looking forward to that. But he likes what the American he likes what he expects the American people will conclude about him, that he was able to sort of, as he would see it, sort of be the bigger person and choose her. And if the relationship is uh, 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 sort of fraught as a result, well, we'll worry about uh, later, later. And I think they've both been worrying about later uh, quite a bit these days. (laughs) (laughs) And in the book, uh, you... uh, Why don't you tell them how you start the book? Sure. So we believe that January 6th is a central element of our political moment. And we did not just want to tack on the events of January 6th as kind of an epilogue of, uh, well, you know, you know, also happening in this period was this uh, would-be insurrection of <laughs> the U.S. government. Uh, it just felt like a bigger moment than that. And we wanted to sort of really make that day, and not just that day, but what led to that day in the aftermath of that day in both parties, a centerpiece of our reporting. So we opened the book right before January 6th with a scene that features two Democrats in the House from that class of 2018 who couldn't be further apart ideologically. Uh, You have, on the one hand, AOC, who, of course, is the firebrand leftist from New York, and then Abigail Spanberger, who's the former Central Intelligence Agency operative uh, term member of Congress from Virginia, who's very much in the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. But Spanberger, by virtue of her training... Uh, con- contacts AOC and says, be careful how you dress tomorrow. Uh, don't wear your, your member pin signifying that you're in Congress. Be low profile. Because Spanberger, like a lot of members of Congress, were very concerned about what could happen on January 6th. And so the, it's this remarkable scene where Spanberger is reaching out to somebody who she doesn't have a lot in common with uh, on politics, but is looking out for her as a friend and a colleague because her health could be uh, 
uh, at risk. Her physical safety could be in jeopardy on January 6th. And from that point, we get into that day and to really sort of chronicle what happened in the Capitol uh, that day through the prism of, of both parties and the leadership and both parties and how they responded to that crisis. And then in the, in the days and weeks after, how both parties responded to that crisis. It's one of the things uh, that I think was so unsettling when we went back after January 6th uh, to report on that period, you know, late December and the first couple days of January, uh, is how many people uh, had some kind of premonition that something bad was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, we knew that Trump was uh, sort of whipping up uh, anger and paranoia uh, in the country. We knew that there were going to be demonstrations. Um, you know, what we didn't know as reporters at the time was how many members of Congress sent their families home, you know, that they were going to be sworn in uh, that week, uh, that same week as the 6th. And so they had uh, their wives or husbands, uh, some of them had kids in town, uh, and, they, and many of them felt like, this doesn't feel right. I don't want my kid to be in. It's an extraordinary thing to hear from a member of Congress that they felt like the nation's capital in the United States of America is not a safe place for my children to be because of what the sitting president is doing uh, to whip up anger and paranoia about this election. Um, it's just chilling to hear that kind of thing. You hear it over and over again. I think we have a, in the book a confrontation uh, in the House gym on the morning of January 6th between two members of Congress uh, who are, are friends. And the Democrat, uh, Jason Crow of Colorado, approaches uh, one of his Republican colleagues and says, you know, people are going to get hurt today. Uh, and a couple hours later, they did. You should mention Anna Eshoo, too. Go ahead. So... Uh, Anna Eshoo, who, of course, is the close ally of, of Speaker Pelosi and is from uh, just down the road here, um, has served in Congress for decades now um, and has, you know, day after day gone to that building to go to work. And she told us that when she, on the morning of the 6th, on the morning of the 6th, when she was being dropped off uh, at the Capitol, that it was reminiscent to her of the scene from The Godfather, where... You, already, you all already know which scene he's going to say, right? He's, he's pulling up to the toll booth, and it's quiet. Too quiet. I mean, that's pretty haunting stuff, and that's how she felt uh, sort of on the morning of the 6th, that something just isn't right here in, in the Capitol. You start the book there. In the process yeah. of the writing, it is clear that you must have had a huge number of conversations yeah. with lots of members of Congress. Yes. You only mentioned two yeah. or three. You yeah. mentioned the CIA person, you mentioned yeah. the New York person, and yeah. you mentioned Anna Eshoo. Yeah. Were there other members Huge. that were not included in your book? And if so, I assume you have that information still available? We do. And one, it, it, is, it is a great, great question. Uh, you know, one of the challenges that we had in, uh, first of all, on the reporting side of this, we just felt so strongly that we didn't want to write a political book that relied on, you know, a dozen and a half White House aides and members of the cabinet sort of narrating from on high what was going on in the country. We wanted to talk to 
Uh, we want to talk to uh, members of Congress, not just uh, leaders uh, in Congress, but you know, junior members too, who experience this up close. We want to talk to governors, uh, including governors of small states. We want to talk to mayors, uh, including mayors of not tiny cities, but uh, but smaller cities uh, about the experience of what the country had been through. So yeah, we talked to a lot of members of Congress, but uh, the challenge in then putting the narrative together uh, as any uh, a political reporter or member of Congress can tell you is that it's really hard to get your average reader to uh, care about the House. Uh, that you know, People care about the President. Uh, they care a little bit less, but they still care about the Senate. They care about the Speaker of the House. And then beyond that, it's really tough to engage uh, the reader's attention. So we knew we had to make these characters come alive. And I hope that one of the things that we've done uh, in the book is even for the folks who appear for a paragraph or two, just give you a little bit of a sense of who they are and why they're in Washington in the first place. And, you know, in a very real sense in this moment, you know, putting, uh, putting themselves in danger to, uh, as they would see it, uh, do the people's business. We do have a lot more material uh, than we use in the book. And I think one of the things that we're wrestling with uh, now is what do you do with all of that? Because we think it's really important um, to preserve that for history and not to have it just all sit in you know, a Google Drive uh, until Jonathan and I you know, like hand over our documents to a, a library in uh, 30 or 40 years, right? Uh, so we're not quite sure how to handle that. Jonathan had the uh, uh, great benefit as a reporter, uh, although sort of dubious experience as a human of actually being in the Capitol on January 6th. So some of the material that you see there is not, that's not interviews after the fact, that's firsthand in, in real time. Yeah, uh, I was in the Senate chamber on January 6th, and um, when the the rioters got into the Capitol and the Capitol Police looked up at the Senate gallery, uh, which is basically like a sort of um, movie theater balcony, about six rows of seats above the, the dais of the Senate. And when they were evacuating the senators, the Capitol Police looked up at the gallery, the press gallery, and said, go to the basement. So that was incredibly helpful both for our personal safety mayor and it was really helpful for our purposes of American history because by them telling us where they were going, I was able to run to the elevator, take the elevator to the basement myself. And once I was in the basement and I saw the senators coming off the elevator or down the stairs, I just followed them. And I made a beeline where they were going and followed the entire U.S. Senate to one of the Senate office buildings via the tunnels that run under the Capitol across Constitution Avenue. And I spent the entire day with the U.S. Senate with, with my phone. And I talked to the senators and I heard what they were saying. I heard what the Capitol Police were saying to them. And so we have this, this you know, moment of, of extreme concern bordering on panic that I was able to sort of witness and record firsthand. And because Jonathan was there, and I'll just be real fast about this, but because Jonathan was there uh, and because he had the tape running, that's the only reason why anybody knows that, for instance, uh, Lindsey Graham, while the riot was still in progress, thought, you know, not just what he said later in public, which is, you know, I'm finished with Trump, expiration date on that, but that, uh, but that Joe Biden was maybe the best person to lead the country. Uh, at that time, right? That was an extraordinary thing uh, that Graham said in that moment. It was obviously a feeling that didn't last, uh, but the fact that such a senior Republican and someone so close to President Trump uh, ever had that thought cross his mind at all and ever uh, uh, vocalized it was only uh, by virtue, we only know that that happened by virtue of the fact that Jonathan was there. And Graham also, uh, this is also in the book, the Capitol Police leadership was trying to address the senators 
uh, and, and offer them some reassurance, but they didn't know what was going on because this is a sort of fog of war type moment. And so the poor Capitol Police officer who's briefing the senators is sort of, uh, and we're trying to get back you know, control of the building, we're in touch, right? He's kind of stalling for time. And Graham uh, interrupts him and in a sort of loud, demanding voice says, you do whatever it takes to take back control of the Capitol. That's the seat of American government. Use any force necessary. And it's remarkable to hear that with the, with the value of hindsight now, because obviously the Republican view, at least a lot of Republicans, the sort of view of what happened that day has sort of changed. But in the moment, you had Lindsey Graham saying, any force necessary, take back that building to the Capitol Police. That's how the book starts. <laughs> it's a hell of a start. That's how the It brings you in, right? That's how the book starts. <laughs> you're hooked. Right. Twelve hours later, you're still listening. But on the interesting... You're in San Jose, yeah. In, in, in doing the book, you say at the outset, the introduction yeah. to the book, which goes on, by the way. <laughs> Tough but fair. Six or eight pages. Uh, <laughs> you, you say why you wrote this book. Yeah. Yep. And what message you believe America needs to hear. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a moment. Well, we wrote the book because we think that this was a uh, extraordinary and ongoing uh, moment of crisis and testing of our uh, political system and our and our national culture. Uh, and we think the country needs to have its eyes open about uh, just how close we came to the system breaking down and where the uh, vulnerabilities uh, remain. You know, I think that one of the things that has been understandable, but in some ways uh, discouraging about the trajectory of our conversation about January 6th. Uh, Obviously, on the one hand, most Republicans have sort of decided to avert their gaze from what happened that day and just uh, move on or uh, just lie about uh, what happened, including people who knew better in real time, uh, like Kevin McCarthy. Um, And I think for a lot of other people, January 6th has been sort of has become this like singular event, like nothing before or after, uh, in a way that I think oversimplifies the threats to our American democracy uh, during that time. That American democracy wasn't at risk uh, because a bunch of people stormed the Capitol. Uh, people stormed the Capitol because American democracy uh, was at risk and because there was already this uh, sort of cultural sickness. Uh, in one of our two parties that made it possible for that many people to be radicalized and to turn violent uh, at the instigation of a sitting president of the United States. We didn't get there uh, overnight. Uh, and because of what happened afterwards was, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have after COVID, we didn't have after the murder of George Floyd, and we didn't have after uh, January 6th, even a fleeting moment of a national unity and national healing. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the things that when you talk to people who were uh, involved in politics at the front lines during that time and who are now looking back on it today, whether it's you know, a Mitch McConnell on one hand, whether it's a Nancy Pelosi uh, on the other, I do think there's a real sense of shock at how quickly everybody just retreated to the corners that they had to begin with and how uh, durable uh, the danger that President Trump uh, poses to the system, uh, how durable that has remained. In the book, you have some conclusions about the threat uh, to the system as we know it. 
to democracy as we know it, and you uh, spend a, quite a bit of time discussing uh, Trump. Give us a little bit of that flavor that you uh, came to for report purposes about Trump. Well, I think one of the, and I'll, I'll um, mostly uh, turn this to Jonathan, but I think that one of the things that we felt strongly about from the start of this project was that people have heard uh, a whole lot about President Trump over the years, and they've uh, learned some pretty shocking things about him. And if all we produced here uh, was him uh, you know, berating his staff or saying offensive stuff, uh, it would not be, uh, not necessarily be worth the price of admission for a reader, because as you have noted, the book is, uh, uh, it does go on for some time. Um, so we wanted to uh, cast Trump in a, in a light that would maybe show people a slightly different side of him. Uh, and I do think that one of the recurring things that we show from uh, not the introduction, but the first page of chapter one uh, is the sort of, uh, uh, it's probably a word I should not use, but the sort of basically a thuggish nature uh, of the way he operated in the presidency, uh, the way he treated uh, the role of the president and the powers of the presidency, uh, the way uh, uh, you know people in other lines of work would treat a protection racket, right? That in the middle of uh, the coronavirus pandemic ravaging uh, the country, he is telling governors who badly need federal assistance, you, know, you need to ask me nicely. Uh, we all know what that means. Uh, I, I must say that when you read the book, they really dramatically lay that out. <laughs> and it, they don't do it on a conclusionary basis. They actually do it on exchanges between people. Tell us about one of those exchanges. Well, the, one, the governor and the president. Yeah. Also. Well, the, there's a number of them. The one that probably is the most vivid is the one that Alex just cited, which is that the president, uh, Trump, is talking to a series of governors, in this case, Ned Lamont from Connecticut, who is sort of this this uh, almost Ned Flanders-like mild-mannered fellow um, from an old waspy family in New England, uh, probably most fam- famous politically because he challenged Joe Lieberman in 2006 and beat Lieberman in the Democratic primary for the Senate, and then he's gone on to become governor of Connecticut. And he, like a lot of governors, was uh, an extremist. He was looking for federal aid for the coronavirus pandemic. He was desperately trying to get help. And so he's reaching out to President Trump and is is asking for, was it PPE? In his case, it was a natural disaster aid. Natural disaster aid. Uh, and Trump it basically says to him, it's almost sort of cartoonish to say, but Trump says to him, well, if you want this, you have to ask me nicely. And I think, you know, Trump does it in a way where it could be that he's kidding around, but probably not kidding around. And I think that gets to the heart of the, the, the sort of Trump dilemma, Mayor, that we grapple with in this book, is that up until January 6th, the Republicans mostly, but also Democrats struggled with how seriously to take Trump. Because on the one hand, he had every sort of sign of a would-be authoritarian who was trying to sort of weaken institutions, who had no regard for the rule of law, who was sort of breaking norms left and right every day. That was clearly troubling. On the other hand, he's sort of this tabloid fixture turned celebrity show who didn't know a lot about the workings of government, didn't really show much interest in it, and seemed just kind of like more bark than bite. And uh, uh, almost a buffoonish figure in the eyes of a lot of political actors. And so I think that tension of which is he? Uh, who is Trump? Is he 
either taken seriously as a real threat to American democracy or is kind of a sideshow, a sort of cartoonish sideshow. And we have this scene with the governor, Phil Murphy of New Jersey, who is you know, a former Goldman Sachs executive who was Obama's ambassador to Germany, a, a pretty serious person. And again, like a lot of governors in 2020, he's looking for help uh, during the midst of the coronavirus. And so Trump has this summer residence mayor um, in New Jersey at Bedminster, at his country club. And so Phil Murphy, the governor of Jersey, and his wife are invited to have dinner with President Trump at Trump's residence in New Jersey. And, you know, Murphy, I don't think, is thrilled about the idea. This is late. Um, this is uh, start early June. And so it's after the, the George Floyd murder. And obviously, it's a very fraught time. But he agrees because, again, he needs help from the federal government. And during the course of this dinner, Trump is talking about how Mike Tyson used to be jealous of him um, because he thought that he was dating Robin Givens, that, you know, Tom Brady has never been the same after Giselle put him on that weirdo diet. Um, he's making fun of Mike Pence because Mike Pence won't be in the same room with women by himself. Uh, he's recalling Marco Rubio's debate flop. It's kind of a stand-up routine. And so Murphy and his wife, they don't know... You know, is this guy a real threat? Is he a thug? Is he somebody who could undermine American democracy? Or is it this just kind of a sideshow? And I think that's a recurring theme throughout the book is these politicians see Trump up close and they don't know what to make of him until January 5th. And that dinner that Jonathan's describing happens only days after Trump's uh, march across the park in front of the White House. Uh, to hold the Bible in the church across the street, where they cleared the protesters with, uh, uh, you know, uh, heavy-handed uh, tactics. Uh, so this, and, and uh, at that same dinner, in the midst of his uh, ruminating on Tom Brady uh, and Mike Tyson and all manner of other things, uh, Trump uh, starts going off about uh, this upcoming uh, rally that he's going to have in Tulsa uh, in a couple weeks, uh, and he says, uh, you know. Do you believe that they want me? That there are people who are saying I should change the date of the rally because of Juneteenth. Uh, he doesn't know what that is. He doesn't know what it is, and he's, you know, they say that, they say that I should change the date of this thing uh, just like for those people. So you go from, yeah, the stand-up comedian to like, wow, that was the president of the United States referring to. This is weeks after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, it's pretty obvious who he means by those people. That's not a stand-up routine, right? And so even within the course of one meal, you're getting both sides yeah. of uh, this very, very uh, dangerous character. And I think just real fast, too, the, what makes this book different, I think, is that we're offering that panoramic perspective. A lot of books cover Trump, but it's mostly from inside uh, the, the White House and Trump yelling at staff. This is a view of Trump from, uh, yes, we have accounts for inside the White House, certainly, but it's also a view of Trump from other parts of Washington, like Congress, and a view of Trump from outside of Washington sort of captures who he was during this crisis um, uh, in American politics. But the second half of the book, Mayor, is about uh, President Biden and um President Biden's struggle to sort of keep the country together and to unify his own party, too. Well, in the book, you cover Trump the way you've described yeah. him. But you also cover him differently yeah. post the November vote. Yeah. Just briefly, 
give us the Trump that you talk about in the book after the November vote? Sure. I think this is when, what I was saying a minute ago about the struggle to, how seriously to take Trump, I think it's, it's, it's after November that more people in both parties realize this is not something to be dismissed. Yes, he tells you know, these, these embarrassing, cringy jokes and post uh, insane things on Twitter, but actually, no, th- this is somebody who could present a clear and present danger to American democracy as he refuses to concede the election in the weeks go by, and he's sort of making things up, and he is desperately trying to overturn the democratic transfer of power in America. I think that's when it really sobers up a lot of people, um, certainly in the Democratic Party, and in some cases in the Republican Party. But keep in mind what was happening in the same period. The balance of power in the Senate was up for grabs because the Georgia runoff was January 5th. And so a lot of the Senate Republicans who were otherwise privately appalled by Trump bit their tongues in public because they did not want to imperil their hold on the Senate by angering Trump and having him torpedo the Georgia runoff, which he did anyways, handing control of the Senate to the Democratic Party. In the book, you talk extensively about the new president. Yeah. Biden. But before you get to the point where you really talk about Biden as president, you talk about how Biden became the president. Yeah. Where did you get some of those material? (laughs) It's pretty good, right? (laughs) Yeah. I I was present for some of it. So I, and and I didn't tell you. (laughs) So let's talk about Uh, from the first yeah. debate uh, to South Carolina. Yeah. So we spend, I think we move through that uh, uh, phase of the book relatively efficiently. Yes, you do. But before you go, because they've given me these questions, yeah. and, and, uh, and I get a colleague that I want to have him, Phil Matera was here somewhere. He may have disappeared uh, from Channel 7, but we hang out together with some regularity, and I really want him to take these questions, and uh, he will sure. ask these questions when it comes time to question time. So if you'll do that, make sure he has them. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, I think we moved through the, the Democratic primaries pretty swiftly, um, both because we had a lot to get to uh, in the book and also because... You know, it was a strange thing about the Democratic race is that it was so disordered uh, and chaotic for so long, or it seemed that way, and then it resolved itself like that. Jump in there for a minute. It seemed that way. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. No, I don't think it was chaotic. Right. No, I mean, you had... I think it was standard Democrat. Well, (laughs) it's a little bit of a tomato-tomato thing there, right? (laughs) But But no, I mean, it was, I think, at the time, it felt like, covering it. You know, Biden sort of chugging along at like 32% or whatever, right, which is not like a dominant advantage in the race. And there's Bernie Sanders, there's Elizabeth Warren, there's Michael Bloomberg. Uh, and it just felt like, you know, God, like if Biden were going to really lock this thing up, we would see some movement here already. Uh, but, you know, what happened was, I think, in very quick succession, Bloomberg implodes, Bernie wins Nevada by a crushing margin. The race moves to South Carolina. 
which is very, very uh, favorable territory for Biden because of his overwhelming support from both black voters and from moderate white voters who are more in you know, communities that are both uh, more represented in South Carolina than in the previous uh, states. Uh, and the Democratic Party has this moment where it really has to make a choice and has to make a choice very, very quickly. Are we going to do the Bernie Sanders thing uh, or not? And Bernie Sanders uh, does Joe Biden an enormous favor uh, in that week, which is right after uh, he wins in Nevada. And in the, again, in this moment, people, this is so lost uh, to public memory in so many ways. Uh, you know, in that moment right after Nevada, it was like, holy cow, uh, Bernie didn't just win this by a couple points. He won this going away. And he won, he showed that he could win uh, voters who aren't white. And he showed that he could uh, win, you know, uh, Latino voters by a big margin uh, in the state. So is he really going to... And then what he does, he goes on 60 Minutes, uh, and he gets asked about his past admiration for Fidel Castro, and he doubles down, and he doubles down again, and he spends days defending it, uh, and that does not do a whole lot uh, for voters in South Carolina or anywhere else. Uh, so you see very, very quickly, not just you know a combination of the other Democratic candidates in the race decide, I'm out, and I'm going with uh, Joe, because we got to stop Bernie. And you see Democratic voters reach the same conclusion. In some cases, I think, reach that conclusion ahead of the politicians uh, who, are, who are telling them uh, to go with Biden. But, uh, Mayor, what you then have is Biden locks up the nomination almost overnight. And then he's got this big party that rallied behind him mostly for uh, reasons of convenience. And he has to figure out, and, and COVID strikes, and yeah. he has to uh, go to the basement. And so you then have this guy who is the de facto nominee in an election that his party believes is an existential uh, fight for the country, who has this massive, totally unwieldy coalition, who's got to figure out how to stitch it together. If you asked any Democrat uh, active in politics in the spring of 2020, how would you take it if Joe Biden and his running mate to be Kamala Harris, who are both known to say things off the cuff that could get them in trouble later. How would you like it if they would basically stay in a basement for the duration of the general election campaign, take no rope line questions from uh, voters or the press, and basically control their message through whatever their staff wanted to put out through basically the entirety of the campaign? Every Democrat in America would have been like, sign us up for that. That sounds like a pretty good deal. You mean... <laughs> Joe Biden without the gaffes? Like, you know, we're here for that, right? And that's in large part what they got throughout 2020 was the sort of gaff-prone uh, nominee and his running mate who also uh, sort of memorably would, would get herself in trouble politically, uh, not having to face sort of impromptu situations from the press or from voters for much of 2020. And then it, it's not until the fall debate season in which Biden is in full Biden flavor as Trump is on stage, uh, as we, we now know, probably COVID positive at the time, and sort of ranting about Biden. Biden finally turns to him and says, would you shut up? Uh, which is a sort of classic Biden moment. But for so much of the, the, the uh, duration of the general election campaign, uh, Biden was insulated, and all the focus was on Trump and Trump's handling of COVID. And boy, was that a political gift for the Democratic Party. Phil, do you want to? We're fascinated by what you're saying. Yeah. Mayor Brown, do you have one more question? I do have one more question, <laughs> obviously. South Carolina, yeah. according to you and your book, was the turning point yeah. for uh, Biden. And it was, according to your book, the ultimate foundation for some of the things he has subsequently done yeah. in his presidency. 
Uh, how did you conclude and what information gave you the idea that South Carolina was how he did it? Look, I, the cornerstone of the Democratic coalition and certainly the, the formula for a Democrat getting nominated president in the modern era is black voters. And I think black voters were crucial to Biden's nomination and were crucial to his winning the general election against Donald Trump. I think you sort of see the makings of that in South Carolina. Joe Biden was someone who had served uh, with a, a younger black president as sort of his deputy, which I think went a long ways with uh, black voters in South Carolina, especially older black voters in South Carolina. And he was somebody who was a pretty familiar face because that's been a lot of time in South Carolina over the years. And I think that gave him a leg up mayor in that state that vaulted him to not just win that state. We kind of knew on primary night in South Carolina that he was going to win. The big news that night was the scale of his victory. And the scale of his victory sent a message. Not only is Joe Biden back, but Joe Biden is back because of Democratic uh, voters who happen to be African-American. And they are going to be a force in the next primaries to come. And if they perform in those races like they did in South Carolina, he will be the nominee. And so that's why I think it was so key to his nomination. And also, I think it's sort of key to his presidency. Now, part of the reason, Mayor, why Biden's numbers are kind of lackluster is because um, he does not have the depth of support among black voters today that he probably would have had uh, in the fall of his, uh, his campaign. And I think there, there's concerns, obviously, in that community about his presidency. In your book, yeah. you uh, clearly indicate that the vice presidential decision yeah. may very well have been made in South Carolina. Yeah. How do you lay that out in the book? Well, it's 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 the vice presidential selection might be the most important uh, uh, case study of this. But you see it in his choices for the cabinet, for some of his staff, uh, this sense that I think it's very clear in all of our reporting that President Biden feels a deep sense of debt to black voters and particularly black women. And I think he knows very well that he would not be there if not for their support and if not for their loyalty during times in the campaign when he was kind of spinning his wheels. And when, by the way, there was a black woman in the race asking for their support, too, and several uh, uh, black men as well. And, the, and I, think he, I think he understands that he can't take that support for granted. I think that after the murder of George Floyd, it became even more clear to him uh, in his campaign that the country is uh, experiencing a moment related to race and national identity uh, that needs to be reflected uh, on the ticket. But, Mayor, of course, that only goes uh, so far. Uh, you know, people say that personnel is policy, uh, but a lot of people believe that policy is policy. And by the time you get to the summer of 21, he's been president for a half a year, and People have seen no progress, uh, particularly on the issue of voting rights. And the Senate filibuster is no weaker than it was uh, on the day Biden took the oath. He meets with a group of uh, prominent civil rights leaders in the Oval Office. Uh, and one of them mentions the importance of black women to his campaign. And he says, I know that I am here because of black women. And then the meeting ends and they all sort of go their separate ways and like, well, what does that do for me, right? Like, it's nice to it's nice to say thank you. It's nice to hear thank you, but like, we voted for you for a reason. Right. Uh, and where are we now? You reference in your book extensively 
as a matter of fact, a lot of pages, the selection of a black woman as the nominee. Yeah. And you identify how it got to be. Yeah. Our former district attorney, our former attorney general, and our former U.S. senator. And? <laughs> what else? Walk through that. The way you do it in the book. As briefly as you can. Yeah, I'll be real fast about it. Look, I think for, for, for a, a number of Biden's advisors, she was the obvious choice from the start. And the current White House chief of staff, uh, we reported in the book, sort of made the case to Biden early on. It should obviously be uh, Senator Harris. She's been uh, road tested as a presidential candidate. She knows what it's like under the hot lights. And the country will like it if you choose somebody who is uh, mean to you in primary season. They will think it means that you're a magnanimous uh, man. Not everybody around Biden felt so magnanimous, including uh, our current uh, uh, first lady. Uh, and, and some other folks in the Biden family. And it really became kind of a process of elimination. Uh, you know, there were uh, 10 to 12 candidates, and they were kind of looking for reasons uh, not to choose people. And, you know, at sort of stage after stage, the, in so many ways, Senator Harris was the yardstick against others, uh, against which others were men, uh, measured. Is this person riskier or safer uh, than Kamala Harris? And there were a couple people in the running uh, all the way to the end. Uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of uh, Michigan, was one of them. There were people in Biden's, very close to Biden, who believed, you know, yes, she's white. Yes, we know that, that might not totally match uh, the political moment, but she'll lock up Michigan, and you need Michigan, and she'll play well across uh, uh, the Midwest and the Great Lakes. Uh, but Biden, at the end of the day, felt that Harris was the person who would uh, get him where he needed to be at the start of November, and that's why he made that decision. It was not a sort of, I want this person to, I, I, you know, I believe strongly that I need to pass the torch to her in four or eight years, or I feel a deep uh, personal bond with her. It was... I want to win, and, and uh, this senator is a winner for me. Yes, sir. Phil. It's 150 pages on this, and really <laughs> quite interesting. Just 150 <laughs> damn book, pages. Just to be clear, the book's like 400 pages. We're not yeah. talking about like war, war and peace here. <laughs> well, we only have so much time, and some of the questions I'm kind of pushed sure, sure. parts of them together because there's some sort of reach. Yeah. But let's just put you on the hot seat to start things. Here we go. Uh, please guess. Or pontificate, or prognosticate. Yeah. The question is, basically, when do you think we are going to hear whether or not Joe Biden runs for re-election, <laughs> yes. and whether or not we hear Donald Trump yes. is going to so, run for re-election, and yeah. which in this Clint Eastwood drama is going to pull <laughs> their gun first? There we Who's go. Going to make the first. Tonight? I think as a point of personal privilege, Alex and I at this point in the program would like to ask a question of uh, the former mayor here. And uh, this is an important question, Mayor. You and I talked a few years ago about the history of Democratic conventions and the conventions that you attended over the years. It's a great video on the, the Times website if you want to check it out. And here we are again going into this next season of Democratic nomination politics. Is Joe Biden, do you think, going to run again for president? And should he, Mayor? Absolutely, and he's got to play the Trump as his opponent. He is going to run, and you think he has to run? Yes. Because Trump is the opposition, yeah. He's, he should run. He's a Democrat that can win. Yeah. And as long as we go with, you know, first-round draft choice. And you think that if Trump is not running, does that mean that the Biden can retire or no? No, okay. ne- neither. Okay. None of the above. All right. Because the kind of people that the Republicans have as alternatives are, are really below the line yeah. for serious consideration. So, you know, the guy in, 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 in Florida, right. uh, 
I think I may have said to you that the Florida situation, uh, you just take crime and poverty and all those things. Florida is probably number one in the country in many of those categories. We Democrats don't talk about that right. yet. He would have to defend that. And believe me, he couldn't defend it. Biden this morning is up in Buffalo, uh, and he brought tears with his presentation. Total non-political presentation yeah. on all the things that occurred over the weekend at the, the Toys Market. Or, and, and Biden is good at that. So, yeah. Back so to you. who calls it? Who comes, comes out first? And it's such think- a fascinating question, Phil. I, look, I think there, there's going to be immense pressure on Joe Biden after the midterms from his own party to offer clarity about his plans. And I think uh, that he will feel that pressure in a way that th- Donald Trump doesn't necessarily feel similar pressure from his own party. Um, I think a, a Democrat's especially if the midterms don't go well, are going to want an answer from Biden. Are you going to run again? You have to t- uh, tell us. Because if not, we have to start preparing for the possibility of a third Donald Trump candidacy. So I think Biden will feel that, that, that pressure and will be sort of forced to offer some insight as to what his plans are. And Phil, I really think if Biden going into the spring of 23, you know, this time next year, if Biden has not said what he's going to do, I think it's totally plausible that there could be a Democrat who enters the race and tries to force his hand. And Donald Trump? I think Trump um, w- would have more latitude from his party because he has a grip on an, a, a third or more of his party that makes him a, a very powerful figure, obviously. Um, I'm not sure that Trump can resist the temptation of indicating his plans. Like, I think Trump would ideally like to draw it out for as long as possible to maximize the attention, which obviously with Trump is the name of the game. But I think it's hard for Trump right now to, to, to not blurt out that he's running for president. So I think Trump will sort of face a, a temptation to, to say it out loud. And um, I think in Biden's case, it's going to be more like pressure from within his party than it is his own personal temptation. The history of Joe Biden is he puts off decisions he does not want to make. We've seen it time and time again. And I think it's, it's fully plausible that if he's not running, that that could be the case again. Now, if the mayor is right and he is running... Uh, I think that could be a quicker decision. Alex, what do you think? Well, there's also one, there's one more factor on the Trump side. The Republican Party is frightened to challenge Trump on anything. Right. Right. Whether it's McConnell, whether it's McCarthy, whether it's Ryan coming back from wherever he is, it will not matter. They just will not challenge Trump, period. And it'll be Trump's option as to whether or not... Now, if he's in jail, he can't run. Well, he he could try. There is a distinct possibility that black attorney general in New York is making it very clear that her goal in life is to uh, incarcerate Trump in spite of Chase of Bodine's desire that he not be incarcerated. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Probation. Because he's a nonviolent offender. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Some might... Community service. <laughs> Can we just say uh, thanks to you all for being here today? Thanks especially to Mayor Brown, uh, who's an American original, and we're thrilled to share the stage with, with you, sir. Thank you for your time. And Hollywood, if you're listening, that screenplay, you heard it right here, the full endorsement, right? (laughs) 
And you should all know that you can uh, continuously be a part of what happens at the Commonwealth Club. The Commonwealth Club is my neighbor. My law office is right next door. And we watch the building of this structure, etc. And we love the idea that lots of people come here uh, to discuss civic affairs. And you can go online uh, in the same way uh, to do exactly that. And believe me, it is well worth your keeping abreast of the events and the activities that will be taking place. They're all where you will be better informed when you leave than you were when you came in. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.